lots of prophecies this morning, which have been fantastic and really linking with what I'm saying to the church this morning about Jonah. Before I do that, I just want to very briefly pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, uh, Heavenly Father God, I pray, Lord, for uh, everything at church this morning, Lord. I pray, Lord, that uh, you'd use me in some way, Lord, to communicate your message to people here, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you give people here ears to hear and to listen and to... Uh, just enjoy something of you, Heavenly Father. I pray, Lord, that you'd be, even this morning, Lord, repairing our hearts, helping us respond to, repent to. Uh, Lord, you restore us, Lord, to what you want us to be as a magnificent church, Lord, here in the centre of Winchester, Lord. Lord, give us, uh, give us, Lord, your heart for the city, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that's not the PowerPoint yet. Okay, so... Um, I've, I've been given the job of uh, explaining and talking through... Jonah chapter 4 and you've had, um, you've had Jonah chapters 1, 2 and 3 and I'm now today going to do Jonah chapter 4 Jonah chapters 1, 2 and 3 when I was a new Christian the first ever Bible study I did at Stoney 94 was on Jonah and chapters 1, 2 and 3 were very very easy I thought to understand and chapter 4 I thought at the time was quite annoying. It's quite an annoying chapter to be given to preach on in some ways. Sorry, Steve, because it's actually quite complex and quite complicated and quite hard to understand. It's a bit like a mystery ending, like a surprise. You go on to the next slide, please. I used to have a clicker thing at school when I'm working, but I've got these guys that are fantastic, do a really good job. This is one of my favourite storybooks, and I briefly want to talk about the storybook. My son, who's nearly three, this is a true story. My wife will back me up, and so will my son Jack over there. My son gave me this book last night, and totally random, okay? And I'd already thought about this storybook. Have any of you, hands up, heard of this storybook, My Mum and Dad Make Me Laugh? Thank you, sir. Thank you, madam. Two people. Three. No, that's not you. Okay, two, three. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. This book is fantastic, and I'll tell you why, okay? In this book, there is an amazing surprise ending at the end. All the way through the book, the mum loves spots, the dad loves stripes, the boy in the middle gets overlooked. All the way through the story, the mum likes cheetahs, the dad likes tigers at the zoo, that sort of thing. He likes striped pyjamas, his wife, the mum, likes spotty pyjamas. And at the end, at the very last page of the whole storybook, we realise that the boy massively loves elephants. He wears grey clothes, he likes buns, he has little elephants. And then you go back through the rest of the book and you go, yeah, that's actually true. That boy loves elephants, and I've, I've overlooked it all the way through. Well, it's just like Jonah chapter 4, because in Jonah chapter 4, we see, God's, uh, we see Jonah's heart, and we see the importance of Jonah's heart revealed before us, in front of God, and we realise the whole four chapters of Jonah is all about Jonah's heart, and about the idols in his heart. It's a bit like the four chapters of Jonah, like in cricket, I used to bat quite a lot. A guy like Dave Bird would bowl at me. The first, ball number one is easy. Ball number two is easy. Ball number three is easy. Ball number four is a reverse swinger. And I didn't understand it until later on, I realised it was a reverse swing. It's a bit like Jonah chapter four, like a Roald Dahl story, like those stories in the century, those TV shows, Tales of the Unexpected, or like Foyle's War, where there's a question from Foyle at the end. You think you know the answer towards the end. Then you realise the last 20 minutes of the programme, it's actually the butler the very last bit, it's actually not the butler, it's one of Foyle's helpers or something, he's done the murder. Okay, let's go on to the next slide. Okay, it's a very simple message today, and it's recapping quite a lot over things which um, 
Steve and Dave and, and Ava Guy has talked about in the last few weeks. Okay, it's all about the three hearts. The hearts of uh, Jonah, God, and you here today. And uh, chapter one is straightforward. God speaks to Jonah, and Jonah runs away. So, Jonah, so, so God says to Jonah, go to Nineveh. And Jonah goes, right, okay, and he's off he goes, you're a direction. Really unhelpful. Chapter two, Jonah is eaten by a great fish, like a whale in the Mediterranean. And Terry Virgo, in his very helpful blog, which runs out at chapter four, actually, the next one's coming on tomorrow, that's really helpful. But Jonah, <laughs> that's really annoying. My wife actually found an archie Kendall commentary at half, about ten past nine this morning. That is so unhelpful of my wife, Grace, to do that. Just at the last minute. Anyway, never mind, it's a real life story. Chapter two, Jonah is eaten by a whale, like a great fish, and Terry Virgo writes, he is restored. Well, I would say, he's vomited out, actually. Um, it's like, Ooh, and he, he's spewed out onto the shore. Chapter 3, Jonah obeys, he's like really fired up, he preaches to Nineveh, and there is the biggest revival that we read about in the Bible. It's actually called a proto-revival. 120,000 people, at least, are saved. And so in chapter 4, we might expect an ending like, um, Jonah was really pleased, done a great job, thank you Lord, and uh, he goes back to uh, uh, Gath Ifa, which is actually where he's from, okay? But it's totally different, and the, the chapter 4, the surprise ending, really shocks us. And I'm going to read through now all of chapter 4. If you've got a Bible, please turn to Jonah chapter 4, that might be helpful, but it's up on the um, PowerPoint here as well. So the guys are going to get that ready. We'll start, it's Jonah, we're going to go through verses 1 to 11. I will not act it out, but I will kind of put some emotion into Jonah's voice. And I hope that's okay with you guys, alright? I don't want to read it in a boring way. It's a really, really good story, so here we go. So, we have this fantastic revival in chapter 3, the end of chapter 3. Chapter 4. Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. I knew it. I knew you were a softy. I, so I knew it. Now, oh Lord, take away my life. It is better for me to die than to live. I'm, I'm making no apology. He comes across to me as quite a northern... He's from northern Israel, okay? But the Lord said, it's true. I could have done a Geordie one, but that... Okay, so it's, if, you're, if you're from Yorkshire... Sorry, sorry, okay? The Lord... Sorry, stereotypes. The Lord replied, and the God's voice is very gentle. Have you any right to be angry? It's like a really nice question by a teacher, isn't it? Like a kid's really kicking off on my lesson ago. Calm down, you just think about your actions. Okay. <laughs> Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. I'm laughing because it's funny later on. Okay. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. He was really, really pleased about that. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, 
God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? Very nice question. I do. I am, I am angry enough to die. The Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Verse 12, there is no verse 12. We don't know what Jonah does, what his response is. We just don't know. You don't know at all what he's going to do. So it's three hearts. The first heart is Jonah's heart. And hopefully that will come from the step. Jonah's heart. The heart, in the Bible, the word heart, the heart is a really important word for us to understand. And in, in Proverbs 4 it says, God says, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. In Psalm 95, do not harden your heart as you did at Meribah. And in chapter 4, we see a heart-to-heart conversation between, between God and Jonah. Somebody gave me some advice before the sermon about an hour ago, said, cut through the nonsense. It's all about the heart. Terry Virgo, in his blog, writes this. On the stage sits a solitary figure. The Ninevites have all gone, and Jonah is left alone with his God. The curtain has fallen on the story, but has risen again, to reveal the heart of the prophet. So the book of Jonah ends not with the triumphant climax of chapter 3, but with chapter 4. This chapter will appear at the end of every one of our life stories. It begins when the final curtain has dropped on your earthly life, when people have held your funeral service and applauded you for your great contribution to the world. Then the curtain will rise again and you'll be alone before God and he'll look into your heart. I found that sight a little bit scary if I'm blatantly honest with you this morning in some ways. That God will, God sees your heart. Like King Saul in the Old Testament, King Saul looked brilliant. Really tall, handsome, uh, really clever guy, brave at fighting, had all the qualifications. God saw the heart of Saul. The Lord does not look at the things that a man, uh, the Lord does not look at the things a man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. With this morning in the worship, we're hearing about how God sees our hearts. God never lets go. God looks right and directly into our hearts. And in football, you know, we, we, we respond well to players that play with a lot of heart. In football, for example. I'm thinking of some England players. Actually, I can't think of any at the moment. I'm thinking about one of the players in the final game. I'm really angry about it, but I'll get done for slander. Hit the bar, so it was obvious, in the second half, and didn't join in running back to help his teammate. Disgraceful. The fans are up in arms. As a Saints fan, if a Saints player runs back and shows a lot of heart like Chris Martin in the late 90s, we go, yeah, well, I'm Chris Martin. We don't like players that don't show a lot of heart. Okay, so heart is very important. I'm thinking of a real-life illustration now of God. He really looks at our hearts. He wants to see a heart that's obedient and really wants to serve him. Now, I'm a father myself of a number of children. I was doing some gardening last month, and my eldest son did a good job 
And he wanted to really, really help out and be obedient and do a good bit of gardening with the lawnmower. So what, I'm sorry to embarrass you, Jack. So what he did, this is an illustration which will helpful for understanding the heart of God and, and God wants obedient hearts. Now, I didn't look at the results, I looked at his heart. The results were, basically, my son went out with the lawnmower and he managed to, well, sorry, Jack, he went out and, and actually, accidentally, my, my other son, who's only nearly three years old, tangled up the wire a little bit and my son, who's 12 years old, was mowing the lawn, a bit like Steve with his hedge mower thing, you know. And then he's going over the, lawn, the lawnmower cable, and accidentally, um, some of the cable became quite bare and quite dangerous to use. Now, Jack came to me with that information. I said, oh, that's, a, that, that's one of my better moments as a father. I must be blatantly honest. I said, that's fine. Thank you. At least you, your heart, at least you tried. And that was good that you tried. Your heart, you know, you, you did try to help. That's really good. I didn't look at the results. I looked at Jack's heart. And to be fair, he was, he was doing a good job of mowing the lawn. And God looks at our hearts. He doesn't always look at the results. I mean, if you look at Jonah, he is a prophet who gets the best results. If you try and tell me a prophet that gets, apart from Jesus, who gets even better results, he sees at least 120,000 people saved in like a day, a couple of days. Amazing. But his heart is rotten. Look at Jeremiah, what a great bloke he is, a fantastic heart to obey God, makes not that much progress. But God doesn't look at results, he's not like an actor or an accountant, counting out the number of people saved and saying, good job, bad job, not so great. He looks at our hearts. Let's move on. Jonah hates Nineveh. He hates Nineveh. His nickname is often Jonah the Mona, and some people say the pouting preacher. I don't think that's very good personally. He's like having a sulk, but it's much more than a sulk. And what he's doing is he's really showing his heart. In verse 2, he says, He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah is furious with white-hot fury at God because God is gracious to all these people. Back to front thinking. Okay? If that was me, if I'd done a quick talk and I had 600,000 people saved, I'd be really pleased. But, but Jonah is the opposite. He has a low view of God. He does not understand God's grace. Now, I'm quite sympathetic to Jonah. I'll give you some background information about Jonah. Jonah is from the north of Israel. He lives in a village called gath Epha in Galilee, five miles from Nazareth. The people there were called the Gittites. And he knew the danger of these roaming bands coming into northern Israel. He may have had family and friends who have been attacked a few times. And he really, really hates. He hates Nineveh. And you can understand why. If you were a a Croat or a Muslim in 1991, and God said to you, go to Belgrade, to to, to go to the capital there, to Milosevic, you go, I'm not going there. If you were like in the southern Sudan, western Sudan, and you you were told to go to Khartoum, to, to preach the gospel to the people there who killed your family and friends. You, you, I'm not going there. So you can understand a little bit about, uh, about Jonah's hatred in his heart. He's told to go to Nineveh. He goes, well, I'm off there. I'm going to Spain. I'm getting a, I'm getting a ship. You can understand him going the opposite direction. Something in, in Jonah's past really makes him worried about the future. He really worries about being attacked again. He's once, in one other part of the Bible, Jonah is talked about in 2 Kings chapter 14. He gives good news to King Jeroboam II, and the king ignores the advice. The kingdom gets even bigger and bigger and bigger. People are richer and richer. The poor are poorer and poorer. And actually, Jonah believes that God is too soft 
and he starts to tell God what to do. And I wonder this morning if there's things in your past, your experiences that maybe hold you back, if there are fears for the future that maybe hold you back from maybe telling the good news to people that you know. Jonah's heart, another point here on the PowerPoint, in Jonah's heart were idols. There were things in Jonah's heart that really held him back from proclaiming the gospel. Now for Jonah, his big idols were uh, religion, his reputation, and his love, his massive love of Israel. In chapter 2, verse 8, God says, Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. An idol is something in your heart that is more important than God. Jonah loves his reputation and looking good more than he loves God. He would rather have the city smashed up and destroyed by God than to, and have his reputation intact than to see people being saved. I wonder if we today here have idols. An idol is something you'd be terrified of losing. So there's the biggest revival in the Bible. And what does, what does Jonah actually do? Well, in verse 5, the Bible says that Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. He makes himself, can you imagine this? All these people have been saved, 120,000 who don't know left from right, that's maybe children under the age of three or four. So we're maybe roughly looking at about 0.6 million people up to that amount. All these people are being saved, and what Jonah does is he goes off to the eastern part of the city, overlooking the city, he makes himself a nice, um, you know, like a, what they call in those days a booth, out of leaves and branches, and he sits in the booth and waits for something to happen. Okay? What is he waiting for? Well, I think he's waiting for some flood, or a fire, or a storm, or an earthquake. He can't wait. He's rubbing his hands, waiting for something really bad to happen to Nineveh. So he makes his move, he sits there, and he's like this. And he, he, he waits and waits for something really terrible to happen to the people of the city of Nineveh, and nothing happens. He's really angry. In the next verse, verse 6, what happens is, the Lord provides a vine. But Jonah is a self-centered spectator, and he's pointing his finger at Nineveh, waiting in judgment. He's sitting in his booth with tunnel vision, thinking only of himself and looking forward to a time when uh, Nineveh will be destroyed. For Jonah, his view of God and Israel, he's very inclusive. And he really loves Israel so much and he really only wants mercy and grace for Israel. He was saved by the great fish, by God in the great fish. And actually, he forgets that very, very quickly and he doesn't want to give that grace. He doesn't want to see that grace and mercy given to Nineveh. He only wants it for Israel, not for other nations. But he, he just sees Israel in everything. And God, with Jonah's heart, God builds a perfect shelter better than the booth made by Jonah. God prepares fantastic uh, lessons for Jonah. Fantastic lesson resources. He prepares a great fish he prepares a vine, like the ship. He prepares a worm. He prepares a scorching east wind. And Jonah 
is so self-centred, so religious, so into his reputation, he loves Israel to the exclusion of everything else that he doesn't take on board that advice and that teaching. And we need to be teachable today to what God is saying to us. Jonah ultimately cares more about a vine than about 0.6 million people being saved. And he really needs the heart of God. And the prophecies this morning, as I move on to the second point about the heart of God and God's heart, the prophecies this morning, a lot of pictures about um, us needing to repent, about God wanting, God's heart, God really wanting to repair our hearts, to um, restore our hearts, to um, make this church what he really wants our church to be. This is all about God's heart. And God, God has a real heart-to-heart um, with Jonah. God's heart is full of love and grace. Jonah's heart is full of hate and bitterness and idols. They're the completely opposite hearts. We need the heart of God. And what 2 Peter 3 says, God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. God is saying that he wants everyone to be saved. God is just and merciful. We've had a series on Jonah, which we're finishing today. Steve's talked a few weeks ago about the heart of God. God is at once just, he hates sin, but God is also merciful and slow to anger. And we're talking about the same God. Both those attributes complement each other. God hates sin in Nineveh and in Jonah's life as well. But what he's done, what God has done for us, he hates sin so much that he has taken our sins and moved them as far as east is from west. And the way he's done that is by allowing his only son, Jesus, to die on the cross as a substitute for us. A fantastic act of grace by a Father God. And what Father God is saying, God's heart, is that he loves everybody. Not just Israel, but all nations as well. He's willing that, he wants everyone in the world to be saved. He cries, the heart of God cries over Nineveh. I had a picture earlier of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, we're thinking about these pictures earlier on this morning of um, people like sinking in quicksand, almost going down into the quicksand. And all they can do is, is stretch out their hand to God and with their other hand they have idols like in a big black bin liner or something and they, they just let, they'd release that, that, those idols and they stretch out their hands to God and the arm of God is so strong that, it, that the arm of God comes down from heaven, grabs the person's hand and actually pulls them out with immense strength out of the quicksand and they're saved. I had that real picture for Winchester or people even here this morning who have idols in their lives they need to re- let go of and to stretch out their hands to God. And God's heart is for everyone to be saved. And God cries over Nineveh and he cries over, over Winchester as well. He has a real concern for the great city of Nineveh and for Winchester. God has invested time and effort in Nineveh and also in Winchester. And these are real tears that that God cries over that great city. We're thinking about 120,000 people that are children that are saved, as well as all the adults and animals and all, that, and all those sorts of things as well. And God really loves every individual in Nineveh. Even though they might be sinners, they might be doing some terrible things, God loves all these people. And God wants to see everyone saved. There's a really good um, book by Philip Yancey, called What's So Amazing About Grace not about my wife by the way it's What's So Amazing About Grace 
In that book, there are several stories you might have heard about before. One of my favourite stories really shows the Father heart of God. We're talking about God's heart here. In that story, there's a dad and there's a, there's a son. And you might be able to guess what the story might be about. Well, the son, it's like the prodigal son in the New Testament. And this son is given some money. He leaves Mexico City and he spends about six months going around, wasting the money, going to pubs, you know, bars, nightclubbing, drugs, everything really. And he wastes, he squanders his inheritance. And one morning he wakes up and he's all over the place. He's run out of money. He's got no hope at all. And he finally comes to his senses. And he writes a letter to his dad back in Mexico City. And to his dad, what he writes is, Dear Father, I'm, I'm so sorry for what I've done. Will you please forgive me? I'm going to get a, catch a train from wherever he was to Mexico City. If you forgive me, will you please leave out a yellow ribbon on a tree near the train station? If I see that yellow ribbon, I will get off the train and go up to your house, to your flat actually, and, I'll, and we'll meet again. If there is no ribbon there, I will not I will just carry on and maybe just you know, go back to where I've come, you know, I'll just go back on the train and, and, re- and return to where I came from. And if you've read the book, you'll know the story. What happens is, he gets on the train and um, he goes through several stops and as the train approaches, it's quite, actually quite upsetting actually, sorry, as the train goes near the, the train station, he sees not just one um, yellow ribbon, but hundreds of, um, of yellow ribbons all over, all, over the, um, all over the trees. And um, he's amazed. He just was, even just one ribbon would be enough. He sees hundreds and thousands of, uh, of yellow ribbons on all the trees, all the signs. And that's a, a really powerful story illustrating the Father heart of God. That just for one sinner, a father, our Father God will go to ridiculous, extravagant lengths to get even just one sinner back in his family. Like the, the, parable, of, of, the parable of the prodigal son, where the youngest son is a complete waster, and yet God, when the prodigal son returns, he go, the father God goes to the son and welcomes him. He goes out of his door and he runs out. And he, and he gives a massive hug and he shows massive love for, for his son. Let's go on to the next slide, guys. Okay, so the next one that comes up is that uh, this is an odd. Now, I, I want just a minute or two, okay, on this picture. I had a picture in community group about four months ago about the church. Honestly, I'm not going to spend ages talking about this picture, but it does fit in well with the story of Jonah. This is a picture of the church. And in this picture, we're talking about the Father heart of God. We're talking about a challenge from God to us. That is a game called Tetris, okay? And as we were in the community group four months ago praying, and the the guys are here today, you know, this morning, we were praying, and I had this picture of a a Tetris game. Okay? Now, the Tetris game, there are some features about Tetris. It was a popular game about 20 years ago. I used to play it a lot when I was at uni, actually. I must admit, I did spend quite a lot of time playing the old Tetris game. In the game of Tetris, there are colourful blocks that come down into the other blocks. Lots of different colours. Some of them are really odd shapes. And you look at them and think, well, that shape will never fit. 
Look at that one coming down in a minute. It's like got four things on it, a thing coming out the end, another one. It's a funny cut. It's not going to fit. That'll never fit in the Tetris game. I'm going to lose. What I believe God's saying here is that there are shapes coming into our church. Well, people actually, not shapes. There are people coming into our church, uh, into our church that are funny shapes. Not literally, okay? But they're like, they, they might not seem to fit. There'll be people coming through the doors that people might look at and go, well, they won't fit. You're having a laugh. That person never fit in our church. They're not quite right. God says he's going to change those people by his grace. So he's going to shift the shapes around and help them fit into the body of Christ. I honestly believe that. The different colours and different shapes. God will not twist them, but change them and improve them and help them to fit into the body of, the body of Christ. There was a picture a few weeks ago. Um, I think it was Peter Smith, uh, my father-in-law, about a fishing net. And it seems to be like a fishing net with fish falling in. And God somehow works miracles in people's lives. To th- everyone fits together. Okay, it's not an easy process, but God's going to do it. For, you know, God's going to help us as a church to fit people in. And these shapes will come down with more and more rapidity and more and more acceleration. You'll see one, then maybe groups of two. We talk, Guy Miller talks about twos at a time accelerating in faster and faster into his church here in Winchester. And as, it, as the lines go there, it sinks to the bottom. Things kind of fall, things kind of, kind of settle down, and, but there are more and more people coming into church. And God really wants us to uh, be challenged to be ready as a fishing net to accept and take on his heart for the lost and to get ready. So I want to move on very quickly now to my last point about your heart before we get back to worship. Your heart. We've heard a lot today about Jonah's heart and God's heart, about God really wanting to repair our hearts, with a gold, our bodies with a golden thread. And there are people here today that have got hearts that have been damaged by experiences, either in or out of church, and God this morning wants to pray, he wants you to be prayed for, and that he's going to use a golden thread to repair your heart. God also wants to restore people here in church back to what they can be. But he also wants us to respond, our hearts to respond to what God is asking us. The big question in verse 11 should I not be concerned about that great city? And we have to respond, to repent, and the third word is a not very nice word, take responsibility. Okay? In response, do you have God's heart for our city? Or are you running away like Jonah? Do you even care about all these funny people from Nineveh and all these funny shapes? Do you need to repent of idols in your heart? Guy Miller, about five weeks ago, challenged Winchester Family Church to take responsibility. To take responsibility in lots of practical ways. Churchill and Spider-Man say the same thing. With great power comes great responsibility. Jonah was saved by a fish, or by God through a fish, spewed out, fantastic revival, he's been uh, what's the word? Forgiven by God. He's been forgiven by God, but he can't show forgiveness. We've all been forgiven by God if we're Christians here this morning. Are we ready to cut people some slack and forgive them and uh, tell people the good news? We've got responsibilities in different areas. Responsibility is not a nice word to use. I don't like the word responsibility sometimes. Sometimes it's better just to sit back a bit and let others have a go. But responsibility in different areas. To put away childish things. 
to throw away idols, to be friendly. There's a funny looking guy at the back over there. Who's going to talk to him? I'm not talking to him. You can talk to him. That sort of attitude. That's a funny looking bloke over there on the balcony. Fancy talking to him, Dave? Dave would do it, I'm sure. Not everyone here might do that. There's a funny guy over there who likes to play a bit of golf on the Daily Mail. I'm not talking to him. It's my job to do responsibility. There's a guy over there wearing a Jack Wills t-shirt. He's a bit too trendy for me. Will I talk to him? No, I'll get my son Jack to do it. No, I will take responsibility. I'll talk to him. I'll, I'll take the responsibility. I won't hide behind my wife and let her do all the talking. I'll take responsibility. We had a guy in church now, he's a few weeks ago, a few months ago, called Dave Merrington. And he talks about responsibility. Have any of you heard of Dave Merrington? Thank you for that, that's good. Dave Merrington was a Saints manager just one glorious season avoiding relegation. Dave Merrington said this, and he said, Geordie, so we'll do the voice. You need, this is what literally he said, it's really important, okay? Dave Merrington said this, Take responsibility. That's your job. If you're the goalkeeper... The centre-half is in the six-yard box, the ball comes over, you're the goalkeeper, it's your responsibility. Okay? There's someone sitting next to you there, and they're a bit funny looking, it's your responsibility to talk to them, within, within, within you know, respect on the rest of it. Okay? Don't leave the ball to the other player. Okay? Some weird person, or some job that he's doing, it, nobody fancies doing it, it's your responsibility. If something goes wrong, some, a lot of the time it's your responsibility. They're responsible to actually go to cell group. If you think, oh, it's a bit boring, Guy Miller said this as well, so I'm allowed to. It's a bit boring, not a lot happens, uh, it starts a bit late, uh, uh, the worship's a bit boring, uh, uh, and the study's not that great, but the cake's quite nice. Your responsibility to go along on time and actually get involved, sorry to preach too much, and to actually get excited about God and bring a word. It's your responsibility to actually liven it up a bit and be a bit, you know, and really get into the word of God and take responsibility to read the Bible, to pray. In chapter 1, verse 6 of Jonah, he's on that ship and he's kind of asleep. He's like, oh man, I can't wait to get to Spain away from Nineveh. And there's, there's a storm and all the, all the guys on the ship are freaking out. They're chucking out stuff. They go, oh, what are we going to do? We're praying for all our gods. They go, they go to Jonah in chapter 1. How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. The people in winter are saying, we're all over the place. There's storms, financial, all sorts. Please pray for us. We've had that picture before from Guy and others. There's a, right, you know, there's people in horrendous storms and, and all sorts of troubles and, and trials going on. And they're saying to us, please, please pray for us. Uh, please do our job, responsibility of praying for others. Not just in church, but others as well. Uh, worship, the responsibility to actually worship and to, to have that real love of God. Like on Wednesday night at the prayer meeting, there was a fantastic word about mission and worship going hand in hand. But we really, really love God. We really want to spread the word and get involved with mission. Not because we feel like it's a job to do like Jonah. We're like, oh, okay, I'll go and do it. We really want to take this one. We really want to do it. There's a famous song, isn't there? It says, Lord, send revival and start in me. So I'm going to move on to the final, final slide here. If it comes up in a minute. That's the, that's the question. I've talked this morning about... Uh, Jonah's heart, about God's heart, about your heart as well. The final question this morning is, should I not, this is what God says at the end of Jonah chapter 4, should I not be concerned about that great city? God loves the city of Winchester massively. He cries out, cries out over the city of Winchester. There are, there are thousands of people that live here in Winchester. But we don't know 
what, uh, what Jonah's response was at the end of the story. We, we really, really don't know. Um, did he respond positively to, to God? Did he just walk away? Did he carry on shouting at God? We really don't know. But we do know that that's a question that God's got for our city. And the whole series, we've had five talks on Jonah. The big message is God's heart for the city of Winchester, for this city. Do we share God's heart? I want to just quickly challenge us, just briefly before the worship band come up. I want to challenge all of you here this morning, if you're a Christian or even not a Christian, if you're, if you're a Christian, you should be concerned about the city of Winchester. You should be concerned about people in your workplace, in your street, in your neighbourhoods. You should be concerned. Not, there's not like a law you have to be concerned, but you love God. If you take on more of God's heart... I believe, and the prophecy this morning that's so helpful, I believe there'll be people this morning coming forward for prayer who need their hearts to be repaired by Jesus and God's golden thread. I believe there are people here this morning who really want to be restored to what they could be in Jesus. They want to be restored, not in a heavy way, not in being beaten over the head by God, but God really wants to just lovingly, like David was saying, and lovingly restore you to what you can be in Jesus. I believe there may, there, there'll be people here who don't know Jesus. There'll be people here who want to know more about Jesus who want to be prayed for here this morning as well. There'll be people here who are religious people who on the surface look really, really good but underneath have got rotten hearts. They know, you know, that you need to be prayed for here this morning to repent and take responsibility. So I'd like now the worship band to, to come to the front. I'd like all of us to get ready to stand, please. I want to look, and we look at that final, keep that final verse up for a minute, please, just for a minute or two. The final verse there, should I not be concerned about that great city?